Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of the Anxiety Book Club. This month, I talk with author, nutritionist, and journalist Christy Harrison about her book, Anti-Diet. We talk about weight stigma, what it means to be overweight or obese, and whether or not it's actually problematic to live in a larger body. Anyways, I hope you enjoy this month's episode. Thanks. Hello and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. Uh, This month, I'm very pleased to have Christy Harrison on the podcast. We're reading her book, Anti-Diet, whose subtitle is Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. Uh, Christy is a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and host of the popular podcast, Food Psych, as well as a journalist. Did I get that bio mostly correct? Yes, that's great. That's, That's the long and short of it. Or the short of okay. it, rather. The short of it. <laughs> the podcast will be the long part. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So I come I come to this book by way of an interest in intuitive eating and in eating in general. We've done a we did a book many episodes ago called When Food Is Comfort. Mm-hmm. And I know the phrase comfort eating is maybe a contentious one. At least I think I read in the book that um, the way some people use it is maybe up for up for grabs. But I, I definitely consider myself, um, to, to not have a better term at my disposal, to be a comfort eater as someone who definitely goes into the kitchen and reaches for uh, comfort foods, uh, things that taste good, um, <laughs> not raw vegetables when I'm stressed or anxious. Um, so I think that, yeah, that's been my interest, at least in, in this world of, you know, healing our relationships with, with the things we put in our bodies. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I think so many people identify that way as, you know, either comfort eaters or emotional eaters. And I identified that way myself many years ago when I first started doing the research that ultimately led to this book. So I, I get it. I feel you. Okay, cool. Um, I don't know if if you think that's a good place to start, but I I remember reading in the book that there was maybe some dispute about the idea of of comfort eating, or is that a, is that a phrase that you um, just in its sort of vanilla form seems uncontroversial, or do you think there's more to unpack there? Yeah, I think there's a lot more to unpack. I mean, I think you know it's interesting that the distinction between comfort eating and emotional eating is also kind of an interesting one. I don't you know I don't know if there is that much of a distinction in the popular imagination, but I just know that the phrase emotional eating is the one that I hear so often used in the literature or used by people to sort of identify as like, oh, I'm eating for emotional reasons, not physical ones, and therefore that's bad, right? And like, you know, turning to food for comfort is seen as bad in our in our culture. And, you know, when I was first doing the research, I mean, the backstory to this is that you know, 10, 11 years ago, I still identified as an emotional eater and I was 
starting to research a book on the cultural history of emotional eating. Like, where did this idea come from? Is this something that humans have always engaged in? Or is this, you know, because I was seeing it in the literature only from like the 1960s onward. And so it was kind of like, what is this concept and why did it evolve? And really discovered that it was born out of sort of the diet industry, or at least, you know, the, the diet industry kind of took that idea and ran with it. And that, you know, the idea that we turn to food for comfort or that we eat our feelings and that we're eating for the wrong reasons is really common in diet culture because I think, you know, diets lead us to do that and then they make us blame ourselves rather than recognizing that the restriction, you know, what I came to learn and understand in my work researching this book and, you know, working with clients and, and all my other work is that, Restriction is what leads to that feeling of emotional eating or feeling of desire and comfort from food more so than, I mean, and th this is complicated too, right? Because it's also very natural to desire comfort from food. And some amount of turning to food for comfort is part of a peaceful, balanced, normal, quote unquote, relationship with food, right? So, you know, we all turn to, com to food for comfort sometimes. It's really... Um, sort of an innate part of our relationship with food, that food gives us pleasure, it gives us satisfaction, it gives us comfort, you know, and one of the earliest food relationships that we have is very comforting, right? The breast or the bottle, you know, fe the feeding relationship with the parent or primary caregiver is is such a, you know, comforting process when we're babies, right? And so I think it's only natural that we have you know, some desire to seek out food for comfort, but it's the it's the restriction and the pathologizing of turning to food for comfort that I think makes it take on this much bigger and more fraught um, thing in our minds. You know, it becomes a thing that we're beating ourselves up over. It becomes a thing that we think we're um, doing wrong or being bad in some way, right? And and the, the tendency, the response to feeling bad about turning to food for comfort is usually to try to restrict, right, to try to stop turning to food for comfort, to try to stop eating as much, um, oftentimes to compensate for what and how much you ate by eating less or over-exercising or even using some really harmful compensatory mechanisms. And, you know, that just creates a vicious cycle, right, when we try to compensate for what we ate and we by restricting the restriction then begets more emotional eating or comfort eating or binge eating whatever you want to call it the restriction drives us to eat more and to feel more out of control with food and so that i think is where it gets really tricky is because when people identify as an emotional eater or comfort eater it's kind of like okay what what goes what like what baggage do you have with that right what are you what are you mean what are you meaning when you say that and what kind of value judgments are you placing on that behavior, on yourself? How are you kind of moralizing about this? And how might you be fanning the flames of this by restricting in response to the, the type of eating that you're doing? Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So so what I'm, what I'm hearing is, is that it could be the case that one reason that you found yourself identifying as an emotional eater or a, a binge eater or a comfort eater is because of restriction, because of dieting. And maybe that's a majority or some large percentage of cases. Mm -hmm. And by, by making that thing a problem too. So you had problem number one, your problem was whatever caused you to go into the kitchen 
if we can say it's a problem, let's say some, let me just take a personal example. Mm -hmm. So let's say I get a text from my girlfriend that makes me worried. Um, and in order feeling, I get all these thoughts and feelings and it makes me feel unsafe and I don't like that feeling and I want to get rid of that feeling or, or numb it a little bit. And so I go into the kitchen, I've got this cake left over for my birthday, this really great coconut cake my parents got me. Uh, not bragging, but it's delicious <laughs> and it freezes really well. So, so I go and I eat a bunch of that. Um, so I guess it's clear from what you said that something that I could then do that would definitely not be a good idea would to criticize myself or go run a few miles or make sure that I didn't have any cake for the next week in order to sort of balance things out. Um, make sure I didn't gain additional weight or dysmorph or, or, or change my body shape in a way that I thought either society wouldn't like, or I wouldn't like. Um, but, but it, it is not necessarily a problem and doing those things in the long run might cause more of that, which by the way is, mm -hmm. is not a problem. Um, but if you see it as such that, that will be sort of worse for you. It, yeah, I know that was kind of rambly, but maybe there's something in there that you could respond to. Yeah, totally. I think I think that's, you know, generally the the case, right? That like, you know, if there's something that comes up for you emotionally and you turn to food for comfort, then piling on by beating yourself up or thinking about how it's going to affect your weight, which, you know, in our culture is so tied to morality, right? And beliefs about our inherent worthiness and desirability and goodness and, you know, ability to be loved and all of that stuff, right? So it's really, you know, weight is so loaded, right? Weight carries a lot of weight in her culture. And so if you are eating in a way that makes you worry you're going to gain weight, they think there's this natural tendency to blame, you know, to put, to shame ourselves, to put the restrictions on, even to think in a restrictive way, even if we're not necessarily acting out restrictive behaviors, although oftentimes it's, there's both physical and mental restriction going on. But, you know, all of those things can then exacerbate the problem and cause you to turn to food for comfort even more, right? Which, you know, again, in and of itself isn't a bad thing. But if it's your only coping mechanism, or if it's the one that you're you know, going back to again and again in a way that feels compulsive or you feel like you can't really do anything else, I think that is something to attend to. You know, I think that's something that needs um, support and attention. And, you know, oftentimes where it comes from is we have this moralizing idea, like these moralizing ideas about food, about body size, about weight, about, you know, what it all means, right? Like diet culture is the system of beliefs that governs really all of how we think about food and weight and bodies in, in Western culture. And what I mean by diet culture is it's a system of beliefs that worships thinness and equates it to health and moral virtue, promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status, uh, demonizes some foods while elevating others, and oppresses people who don't match up with its supposed picture of health. And, you know, so all of those things are so pervasive in how we think and talk about food and bodies in our culture. And those beliefs really weave their way into everything, right? And, and from a young age, for pretty much all of us, I would say, we've adopted diet culture beliefs without even really recognizing we have. And so, you know, when you have cake sitting in your fridge, I think there's oftentimes this reflexive, like, don't do it, don't go there, you know, this little voice in the back of your head being like, 
you can't, you know, you're not allowed, you have to moderate, you have to have small portions, you have to make this last, whatever those thoughts are telling you, right? And that in and of itself can also increase the um, salience of that particular food. It actually makes, you know, when you have that sort of forbiddenness on a particular food, it makes that food more um, irresistible and there's research showing that when people can stop having foods be forbidden and, and start becoming habituated to them, it really loses that pull. It loses that magic, you know, so that you're still enjoying the food. You're still um, you still get pleasure from the food, but it's not this sort of like compulsive, like got to have it now. Can't can't resist. And this push pull of like, I, I mustn't, oh, but I have to. Um, and there's also, you know, this this idea that if you're um, not eating enough in general or if you are, you know, restricting particular food groups, then you're more likely to actually turn to food for comfort, right? So diet research shows that dieters are the ones who tend to label themselves as emotional eaters and who tend to think of themselves as turning to food for comfort more in difficult situations. And the reality is that, you know, when you're not dieting, when you're not um, in that sort of restrictive mindset with food, human beings tend to, in difficult situations, actually tend to lose their appetite when they're not um, deprived of food. You know, so if you're, if you've been, uh, if you've ever been in a relationship with food where you weren't kind of dieting or, or habitually deprived, um, you know, which, I mean, I can remember times like that in my life. Not, not everyone can, but, you know, I can definitely remember distinct moments in my life where I was not hungry when some emotional thing happened, right? And the sort of default response would be to lose my appetite. And when I was in my dieting years, which was about a decade of my life, it was like, you know, every emotional blow would have me running to the kitchen, you know? And I, I thought that that was never going to change, right? I thought that I was just marked forever as an emotional eater. I came to discover through my own recovery, my own healing and my relationship with food and, you know, stopping dieting and getting back to intuitive eating, that the same now is true where like I don't have, you know, significant emotional eating. I certainly occasionally will want food for comfort, but it's it's never totally divorced from hunger either. You know, it's never like, oh, I'm so full and yet I can't stop eating because something is compelling me. There's not that compulsion there anymore. There's not that binging there anymore because I'm just well fed and satisfied the rest of the time. And so, you know, it's really interesting to to know that from lived experience where it's like, oh, wow, I thought I could never have, you know, cookies in my pantry and not go through them in a 24 hour period. And now there's like five different bags of cookies in there that I can take take my pick of whenever I want. And they last for months because I don't have that same compulsion. I'm still eating them. I'm still enjoying them. But it's not with that same kind of like frenzied quality or like must have it now. And there's a lot more variety outside of that, too. I can also have, you know, salty snacks and also have meals and, you know, not feel compelled to just the forbidden foods anymore because I don't have any forbidden foods anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. It's it's definitely a very powerful idea. Um and maybe accounts for a lot of people's sort of unhealthy relationship with food. I wonder though, is it possible that is it possible that there are those out there who are emotionally eating and and also not restricting? Like maybe they've come to food as a source of comfort, maybe because they haven't taken the time to develop other, you know, self-soothing techniques, but they aren't 
dieters or don't consider themselves dieters? Yeah, I think that I think that exists. I think it's a much much smaller minority, and I would say that you know it's tricky because I think a lot of times in childhood, right, when we're you know going through stuff and learning whatever coping skills we have at hand, there can be a tendency to like turn towards food in situations of trauma or just um, anxiety or depression or whatever might be going on. You know, kids do sometimes tend to turn to food in that way, and the thing is that, you know, that in and of itself is just a benign coping mechanism, right? It's like doing the best you can with the situation you've been dealt. Um, but then pretty quickly, the diet culture beliefs come into play, right? It's like you're gaining weight. And so an adult notices and like sends you to the doctor, or sends you to fat camp, or, you know, you get shamed and bullied by your peers, or you start to feel bad about and guilty about what you're eating because of things that you read and see in the culture of like, you know, demonizing gluttony or demonizing certain kinds of foods, right? And so it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Like, yes, we there are definitely folks out there who turn to food for comfort, maybe when they weren't initially dieting. But I think um, it gets it gets all tied up and tangled up with diet culture so that there is some diet mentality in there. I think for most most people and especially most adults who've been maybe engaging in that pattern for a while, there's probably a lot of guilt and a lot of shame tied up in the emotional eating or comfort eating behaviors that is really coming from diet culture. And so, you know, one of the things that I do in my practice and a colleague of mine named Judith Matz um, has, has a great episode of my podcast where she talks about this, too, is that, um, you know, you, you start with rejecting the diet mentality. You start with helping people um, break free from diet culture, right, and let go of the diet culture beliefs and stop restricting themselves in any way, right, physically or mentally. You help people stop um, stop dieting, even when they don't think they're dieting, right? Because that's the thing. I think so many people in our culture are actually dieting when they wouldn't consider themselves dieters. They're just, they're engaging in diety behaviors. You know, they're um, watching their portion size. They're cutting out certain food groups. They're um, maybe fasting a certain percentage of the time or they're, you know, just watching their carbs or whatever it might be, right? There's these little ways that people don't think of as dieting that actually are dieting. And so, you know, I think really examining that and getting clear on that for yourself is really helpful and important in healing your relationship with food. And if you, you know, can get through that place where you're, you know, get to a place where you're not restricting anymore, you're not governed by diet culture beliefs and behaviors anymore, and you still find yourself turning to food for comfort, and, you know, this is like over months or years of of consistent work and recovery and healing your relationship with food – if you get to a point where you truly feel at peace with food and like you're allowed to have whatever you want, whenever you want, however much you want, you have true unconditional permission to eat and you're still turning to food for comfort fairly often, then that might be a time when you start to work on, you know, finding other coping mechanisms, not instead of eating, but in addition to eating. Because I think, you know, people often make the mistake of trying to rip away the eating behavior and just substitute something else in its place. And that can also feel very restrictive and depriving. You know, you feel like you're you're on a diet suddenly, right? Because it's now the, you know, don't eat emotionally diet. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think um, it, there is a place certainly for dealing with the behavior of turning to food for comfort 
that's not coming from restriction, but I think it's it's a lot more tangled up in diet mentality and diet culture than a lot of people would believe. So I would, you know, I would say to anyone who's listening who like thinks that they might be an emotional eater, comfort eater, and aren't dieting per se, quote unquote, to actually look at the ways that they've internalized diet culture beliefs and that they might be engaging in diet culture behaviors without even knowing it. Because they're very, you know, it's it's really subtle. It's really insidious. And I think our culture in general encourages disordered eating at a massive scale. So, you know, thinking about those subtle ways um, and trying to let go of those little diet culture rules that you've internalized can actually help quell the urge to turn to food for comfort as like a soul or compulsive coping mechanism. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for that. I, I, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, so I would, so I don't keep potato chips in my apartment and that's because I don't trust myself around bags and bags of potato chips. And so it, it, uh, viewed in the lens that you just described, and I am on a diet, my diet's called no potato chips in the house only when I'm out at restaurants or yes. something like that. Yes. So perhaps that that is it's it's weird because it's both like the symptom and the cause. But like not having them in the house um, is sort of causing me to eat too many of them when they are available to me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, so I'm, I'm definitely happy to subscribe to that. And it could be the case that it's like capital D, capital C diet culture that has made it that way for me. Or it could also be like my beliefs that leading uh, eating lots of potato chips is somehow bad for my health. Mm -hmm. um, and I and there's so many interesting threads to pull on here. And I guess I want to pull on two of them, but I want to pull on the one that was for me the hardest pill to swallow <laughs> using a, a food <laughs> sort of um, idiom here. But, you know, there's some shocking stuff in this book, uh, at least for what you might consider like lay, lay people like myself who aren't nutritionists or don't know much about the world, mm -hmm. or for people who used to enjoy and respect authors like, you know, Michael Pollan or that guy that made Fast Food Nation, like uh, these these authors who maybe write things that are aimed at the kind of audience that I find myself in, which is like, you know, liberal, progressive, educated, you know, wants to have these, you know, great values about the world and mm -hmm. understand what the evil corporations are doing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but OK, so the biggest thing in the book that just you know, made my my chin drop was this idea that being larger, and I want to get the terminology right, because I've I found in the book new words or new phrases uh, to substitute for the words that I'd already readily adopted. So mm -hmm. obese, overweight, and perhaps even the word fat. Um, and, and maybe we, ugh, this question is rambly, and I'm, I know there's like lots of tributaries we could go down. Um, the idea of like living in a larger body and, and saying that instead of saying fat or overweight or however people want to self-identify. But the biggest bombshell I think in the book that I need a little more explaining on is the idea that being overweight, and I guess that's the term I'll use until, you know, you help me figure out a better one, um, mm -hmm. does, does not either cause, and I know causality is hard, does not cause or correlated with or associated with like health outcomes that someone might not want. Mm -hmm. um, so I know there's so much there, but maybe 
pick a couple of those things I just said and, and help me unpack this. Sure, stuff. sure. I mean, so first I'll say on the terminology piece, you know, I do say larger bodied instead of overweight or obese because the terms overweight and obese are stigmatizing, right? Like overweight, over what weight is so that, you know, it's implying that someone is over an acceptable weight, which is moralizing and stigmatizing. And, you know, obese actually has roots in the Latin for having eaten oneself fat, which implies, you know, that someone is personally responsible for their weight, that, you know, it comes from gluttony or whatever. And that's incredibly stigmatizing too. And especially the way that the word is used now and, you know, current medical circles to mean a disease, you know, it's it's labeling people's bodies as diseased is just so problematic. So, you know, I say larger bodied or higher weight um, as a person in a smaller body myself or a thin person, I don't say the word fat unless I'm using it with someone who self-identifies that way. Usually in the spirit of fat acceptance, I also subscribe to the term, you know, the concept of fat acceptance, which means um, reclaiming the term and the identity of fat to mean just a neutral descriptor, nothing moralizing or shameful about it, you know. And so I have colleagues who identify as fat and reclaim that word for themselves. But, you know, as someone outside of that community, I can't foist that reclamation on someone else. And it can be hurtful sometimes for people who are larger bodied to hear a thin person using the word fat directed at them or directed at people who look like them when that word has been used as an epithet against them in the past, right? So it's it's complicated. But, you know, I think the word fat is totally neutral, morally neutral, like totally fine, neutral descriptor. Um, and, you know, I sort of use it in certain contexts. So for our purposes here, since, you know, we're talking to a, a general audience, I'll say larger bodied or higher weight. Um, so, and, you know, the in terms of the research, right, in the book, um, yeah, so there really is no evidence, no good evidence showing that being higher weight causes poor health outcomes, right? So diabetes, heart disease, mortality, cancer, what have you, right? Um, there is evidence to show a correlation between being higher weight and having those poor health outcomes. But the question is, why, right? What is the link there? Correlation does not mean causation. And diet culture takes that correlation to mean causation. And that actually has really negative effects on people's well-being, right? To, to attribute causality to higher weight and to say the way to fix these things is to lose weight actually has far worse consequences because, you know, what I've really found in the research, and there's so much out there on this, and, and I, you know, put a fraction of it in my book, but, you know, really that weight stigma, which is the discrimination against and devaluing of uh, people in larger bodies, weight stigma is actually an independent risk factor for health. It's actually um, riskier for your health than what you eat, which is mind-blowing, I think, to a lot of people in diet culture, right? That being stigmatized for your weight is worse for your health than, than eating a quote-unquote poor diet. Um, and that weight cycling, the repeated loss and regain of weight, is also an independent risk factor for health and also can explain much, if not all, of the excess risk we see in larger-bodied people for a variety of things, including, like, most significantly heart disease risks. You know, the, there's research showing that, um, you know, all of the mortality risk from cardiovascular causes in larger-bodied people may be just attributed to weight cycling, right, because people who are higher weight are more likely to have tried to lose weight. And we know from other research that 
it, weight loss attempts almost always, like up to 98% of the time, lead to weight cycling. They do not lead to permanent sustained weight loss. People who try to lose weight are going to regain it all back, you know, up to 98% gain all of their weight back, and then up to two-thirds regain more weight than they lost. So a lot of times we'll see people like diet their way up the scale. And that weight cycling, regardless of whether you just regain everything back or you know, regain more, um, any weight cycling that you go through puts your health at greater risk. And so those two things together, weight, weight stigma and weight cycling can explain much, if not all of those excess risks and, out, you know, poor outcomes that we see in higher weight people. There's also other factors like, you know, poverty, right? People in poverty in, in the U.S. and other parts of the Western world tend to be larger bodied. And, you know, it's, likely the poverty and not the weight itself that's causing a lot of these poor health outcomes. Same with, you know, racial discrimination, right? Same with um, lack of access to medical care. You know, there's lots of things that uh, have a lot bigger impact on our health and well-being than what we eat or how we move our bodies or how much we weigh that are likely uh, contributing to the, the excess health risks we see in larger body people. And so to you know, just assume that being higher weight is going to cause you to die earlier, being higher weight is going to cause you to get diabetes or cause you to get, you know, COVID-19, right, as now the um, diet culture, you know, media is is touting, um, I think really misses the mark and misses these nuances of what's actually causing it. You know, it's not it's not the weight itself, right? There's a lot that goes into, there's a lot that goes along with being higher weight in this culture that's very different than, you know, being a smaller bodied person, right? You're, you're experiencing extremely high levels of weight stigma, both externally and internally. You're experiencing huge pressure to lose weight and to diet. And so, you know, often far more weight cycling is occurring in larger bodied people than smaller bodied people. And, you know, so those things I think are really, um, really need to be the focus of research going forward and, and not this reflexive blaming of body size. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for all of that. Um, it, just to pull on it a little more and make sure that I understand the argument, because I think it's a pretty clear argument that you're making. So, so uh, someone take a person, let's say me, um, who is overweight, and try to figure out, um, and let's say I also have some kind of negative health outcome, like hypertension, or high blood pressure, or diabetes, or something like that. If you want to figure out the answer to the question, why does this person have those poor health outcomes? you could answer it in a bunch of different ways. And one, which you argue against in the book, is that it's because of the high, higher weight. Like some physical process has occurred somewhere in the body where just having more weight on the bones has uh, been causally related to these poor health outcomes. Or you could say, well, maybe that's true, but because of all of these negative outcomes associated with dieting and diet culture and and maybe racism um, and weight cycling and weight stigmatization, it's more likely, and, and perhaps uh, the evidence is there, that to explain this person's poor health outcomes, you're in a better position sort of like epistemologically or just like in an, if you want to be able to say true things about the world, you're more likely to be right pointing to those things like the weight cycling and the stigma and maybe the poverty and the racism 
then you are likely to be correct in saying that it's just the weight itself uh, that is causing those poor health outcomes. Is, have I got that correct? Yeah, definitely. I think that's right. And I think to to sort of extend that too, it's like at the end of the day, we actually are never going to know the cause for any particular person, right? Where it's, you know, it's all so complex. Health is a multifaceted thing. We do know at the population level that only about 10% of population health outcomes are attributable to food and exercise. Only another 20% are attributable to all other health, individual health behaviors. And then the rest, that 70%, you know, the lion's share of um, determinants of health, or at least, you know, um, determinants of health outside of genetics, but um, the ones that we have some individual or societal control over, that 70% is down to social determinants of health. So things that we don't have individual control over, but things like socioeconomic status, um, just, you know, experiences of discrimination, sort of one's position in society and how that causes them to be perceived and treated and, you know, the effects that that has, that especially the the stress of discrimination um, or the stress of poverty and marginalization has on people's, um, you know, on people's bodies. And so, you know, I think that that's, that's more likely to be the case, right, as, as the explanatory factor is that, you know, it's got a lot more to do with weight stigma and other forms of stigma and discrimination and weight cycling and, you know, past history of trying to lose weight and that we can never know entirely for sure. And so what do we do with that, right? What do we do with the fact that we we don't know entirely for sure? Well, I think it's it's really clear from the evidence on the failure rate of diets, right, the failure rate of any intentional weight loss, I should say, because, Again, in this day and age, nobody wants to call anything a diet, but, you know, any intentional weight loss effort has that, you know, up to 98% failure rate, right? So prescribing something like a diet for someone with diabetes or hypertension or whatever is much more likely to fail and to result in weight cycling than it is to result in long-term weight loss. And we know that weight cycling has those independent negative health effects, right? So really, we don't want to go down the road of prescribing weight loss. And I think the better approach to addressing people's health needs is just to treat everyone the same across the weight spectrum, right? To say, okay, what evidence-based methods are there for treating diabetes or hypertension or, you know, knee problems or plantar fasciitis or whatever it might be in a smaller bodied person. And let's apply those same evidence-based practices to larger bodied people because they actually do work in larger bodied populations as well, right? Those, you know, dieting is has a 98% failure rate has not been shown to be effective. We have far more effective interventions that we can give people all across the weight spectrum to help their health and well-being and, you know, let's do that instead of like beating the dead horse of intentional weight loss which just is not going to work. Sure. Yeah, and 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 perhaps it's my attachment to these ideas that I've never questioned before that makes this sort of such a niggling issue for me, but I just want to dig into it one more time just to just to get a little more clarity because I really do think for for me at least, this was definitely the most surprising and controversial claim. But it, it could have been the case. And and I guess because you're you're a nutritionist and you're working with people and you're trying to solve like literal, like real people's problems, it makes more sense to focus on, as you say, the things that they can actually control and have a good chance um, of knowing that it will work. So avoiding diet, for example, will not put them through, you know, weight cycling and other things that are just clearly bad for your health. But 
the idea that being overweight and maybe that's not the right term or being fat is not associated or, or is not causally related to these poor health outcomes. So, so you said a, a few minutes ago that, and I agree with you, like health science and nutrition, it's complicated. Um, causality is hard, even in maybe physics. And then forget it when you're talking about individual human bodies that live, live in cultures that have more or less money or more or less privilege. But it could still be the case, couldn't it? Like, so it, it makes me uh, remember back in the day when like the cigarette companies were testifying before Congress and they they weren't coming out and saying that like it caused cancer, but that there was correlations and therefore maybe the, the jury was still out. But is, is the burden of proof, and I don't know this because I'm not a, a doctor or a scientist, but you're, the, the burden of proof for you for weight being associated with poor health outcomes seems to be pretty high. Like it must be causally related in order for the medical establishment or scientific establishment to stand behind it, to stand behind it. But isn't it the case that having just these correlations or associations in medicine or in science in general does lead, you know, doctors and scientists to make recommendations in the direction of a particular intervention, even if they don't have the, the causal process right? So like, uh, you know, when they prescribe SSRIs to people who are depressed, do they know exactly like the causal system going on in the brain when you take the pill, it does the thing in your head and there, and then you become like, I, I think you know what I'm trying to say, mm -hmm. but I, I'm just, I'm trying to stick on this issue because I think it could, it could have definitely been the case that the book was written without having to come so um, hard against the idea that being overweight is bad for you. Like it, it could still be true. Both things could be true. And there's just nothing we can do about it. Because as you said, dieting doesn't work. But it could still be true that being overweight, you know, for lack of a better word, um, is related or is causally related. Do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I think that's definitely a possibility, right? There's a possibility that there's some um, causal relationship between higher weight and certain poor health outcomes. The thing is, there's it's a lot more likely that it's these other things that are explaining the relationship. That it's not the fatness itself that's causing the problem. That it's you know a whole host of other other things that just happen to be more common in larger bodied people. And if we were to be able to somehow control for all those things, which I think is really challenging in research. Um, would we end up with some, you know, small piece of the pie that was just the weight itself? Maybe, you know, that's possible. But to that, I would say, like, we also know that there is, you know, there are higher risks associated with being male, for example, for heart disease or with um, being fairer skinned for skin cancer or, you know, being whatever, right? You know, being, being taller seems to be associated with certain poor health outcomes, you know? There's a lot of things that we can't change about ourselves that may um, have, you know, confer health risks of a, of a certain type, right? It seems to be in the research we have so far on COVID-19, which is still pretty early stage, that um, males seem to be more at risk of having adverse outcomes in COVID-19. We don't really know why, you know. Um, nobody is suggesting, though, that someone go and change their gender to avoid those risks or, or somehow become less tall to avoid those risks or become less white to avoid those risks, right? Or whatever it might be. You know, it's um, there's certain things about our bodies that we just accept. 
as, you know, our genetic lot in life. And the research really shows that weight is a similar thing, right? Weight is about as genetically determined as height. You know, about 70% of our weight is genetically determined. And of course, things, you know, environmental factors account for that other 30%, right? But, you know, there's a lot of it that is just immutable that we just don't have any control over. And so given all of that, you know, even if there is some you know, undetermined, as yet undetermined percentage of health risks that might be explained by just the weight itself, there's really not much we can do about it. And so why not treat it as, you know, a neutral fact about people the same way that we treat, you know, or I mean, this is complicated too, right? But in medicine anyway, we're supposed to try to treat um, people the same based on their gender or their skin color or their height or whatever it might be, right? Of course, there's, you know, a lot of systemic bias that comes into play there too. But, um, you know, we're not telling people who are tall to get less tall, right, to, to reduce their risk of certain outcomes. And so, you know, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's, it's basically um, – you know, I just think it's not relevant necessarily to to the conversation to say like what co- you know what percentage of of this is caused by weight because at the end of the day we don't really have any way to change people's weight, right? Intentional weight loss of all kinds really has that incredibly high failure rate and puts people's health at risk via weight cycling, not to mention via disordered eating and mental health problems, right? Because dieting is one of the one of the number one risk factors for disordered eating and eating disorders. And when you start telling people to intentionally lose weight, it increases their levels of binge eating, it increases their rates of depression and anxiety, it, you know, creates drama and chaos in their relationship with food. It makes them feel out of control with food. It often, you know, can trigger, um, it for certain vulnerable people anyway, can trigger anorexia, right? Can trigger this full-blown um, restrictive eating pattern. So, you know, telling people to try to manipulate their weight does a lot more harm than good. And so I think whatever the case may be, whatever the causality may or may not be, I think it does the world much better. It's, you know, it's much better for people's well-being um, to stop focusing on weight and trying to lose weight and start focusing on the other ways that they can take care of themselves that have nothing to do with weight. Yep. Uh, thank you. And thanks for your patience on that. I won't beat that horse anymore. <laughs> I just wanted to give air to it because it was like, it was really, you know, shocking to me and, and, and maybe less shocking to you because you've written this book and you've been in this world for for a while, but like, you know, stop someone on the sidewalk and ask them if, if weight causes like poor health outcomes and like, you know, you know what answer you're going to get. So I, I was that guy on the sidewalk and I needed to talk to you about <laughs> this. So that's why I asked you those two questions. Yeah. Um, totally but let's, let's talk about some of the other things in the book. Um, so there's two things in there, two ideas. One we've already mentioned intuitive eating. And the other one is this program called health at, at, at every size. And I want to talk about both of those. So um, also, if you ask the man on the sidewalk, what is intuitive eating, you get the definition that we find on page 209 that is not correct. And that definition is eat only when you're hungry and stop when you're full. Um, 
So if that is not what is intuitive eating, and I think I sort of know a little more what your answer might be just based on the last half an hour of our conversation, but what is intuitive eating? Yeah. So intuitive eating is a really innate relationship with food that we're all born with that does involve, you know, honoring our hunger and our fullness and trusting those cues to guide us and also, you know, eating what satisfies us, what brings us pleasure. But it's also, you know, sort of a um, overarching philosophy of intuitive eating is about breaking free from diet culture and letting go of those notions that you're only allowed to eat when you're hungry and you must stop as soon as you're full and you have to eat this and not that and certain foods are bad for you and others are good and, you know, this moralizing and demonizing of foods and this moral, you know, pathologizing of certain weights and glorifying of other weights, right? It's it's stripping away all of that. It's letting go of all of that and getting back to this place where food can just be easy, you know? And so it doesn't have rules. It's not the hunger and fullness diet, as I talk about in the book, right? It's not, you know, you must only eat when you're hungry and you have to eat at a certain level on the hunger scale and then you have to stop at this level on the fullness scale because that's just dieting, right? That's just, you know, portion control by another name. It's intuitive eating is really about um, taking care of yourself with food, right? Getting enough food to really feel satisfied, to feel nourished, to feel energized, um, learning what you like and don't like and learning how to pursue pleasure in eating, um, learning how to eat until you're satisfied and trust when you are satisfied and, you know, turn away from food, that food will be there again when you're ready. And of course, that's complicated by situations of food insecurity, right, and economic deprivation. So there's that nuance to intuitive eating, too, that, you know, you, you have to um, sort of adapt it to work with different populations, but, you know, that everyone really has the capacity to get back to that innate, easy way of eating that we're born with. You know, babies cry when they're hungry, right? They tell you about it. They, you know, eat what they want. They turn their faces away if they don't like something. And then they, you know, stop when they're satisfied and they're ready to go play. And, you know, that's that's how food can be as an adult as well, you know, with minor differences. Maybe you're not going to go play, you're going to go work or whatever, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it can have that same ease to it when we strip away all of the, I don't know if I can swear here, but all the BS that, you know, diet culture puts on us and, and the ways in which it gets in the way of those, um, you know, innate cues about food and, and movement. Sure. Yeah. And feel free to swear. I, I have a no, there's no grandmas <laughs> listening to this podcast. I've told them go somewhere else. So whatever you want to say is fine. Awesome. Um, yeah. So I think it's, it's so interesting because the way that we approach as a society, like eating is, is not that this, it's not so unique to the way we approach any other problem that we try to solve. Like, you know, when you build a house, you think, okay, let's, let's put two doors because, mm -hmm. you know, one, one's nice, but two is better. Um, you know, or if we are building a car or something, we make sure that it has like four seats because you might have some friends and, mm -hmm. and it seems reasonable. But when we talk about rules for eating, because this, because any restriction sort of uh, unwinds the goodness that we were trying to achieve, like, let's say we were making a child, right? Like, that's what people do all the time. My sister's pregnant. Mm -hmm. She's about to have one. Like she, she was, is, is reading books and articles about what to feed them. Um, and that all makes sense until it's time for that person to choose for themselves. And it just happens to be the case that because of human psychology, if we pathologize, as you say, or we stigmatize or we restrict ourselves in this eating category, um, 
things just aren't going to end well. Mm-hmm. So, so dieting or, or thinking about how to eat is just, it's just maybe not a problem that you should try so hard to solve. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's not like building a house or building a car or any other system you're trying to des- design. The more rules it seems that you put in place for how you go about um, nourishing yourself, um, the worst perhaps is the outcome. Yeah. I mean, I would agree. You know, I think there is a place for nutrition and some kind of outside knowledge and intuitive eating, but it's the 10th of 10 principles, right? It's the last one for a reason because it's in my mind, the least important really. And, you know, I would say like to your analogy of, you know, building a car or house or whatever, I think eating is a lot more like breathing or going to the bathroom than it is like building a car or a house right? It's, it's a lot more instinctual. It's a lot more governed by our inner cues and awareness and, you know, bodily sensations than it is about, you know, overthinking things and perfection and design and crafting. And, you know, I think there's, there's a real limit to what our intellect can achieve in our relationship with food. And I think, you know, our intellects can, can drive us in the direction of learning about intuitive eating, right? Of, of unlearning diet culture, of understanding the harms that diet culture causes. You know, I think there's a real place for intellect in that because you have to think through it and you have to start to understand and believe it in order to do the work of relearning intuitive eating. But I think at the end of the day, the actual process of relearning intuitive eating is much more about getting in touch with these inner states and, you know, reconnecting mind and body and getting back to that place where it is as easy as breathing. You know, it is a second nature as, oh, I realize I have to pee and I'm going to go to the bathroom, you know, like it's it we have to take out that sort of obsessive planning um, project quality that it has. And I think especially in this new millennium, you know, since the turn of the millennium, it's really been just so many obsessions and and sort of new things layered on, right? I talk in the book about like, you know, Michael Pollan, who I used to be a huge fan of and like you, you know, have always been progressive and, you know, trying to think about social justice and everything I do and thinking about the ways in which, you know, food corporations are, are you know, dominating our lives or whatever was, was um, really frustrating to me. And I wanted to like do good and, you know, eat the right way, quote unquote. And that sent me on this wild goose chase of, you know, now it wasn't only about, you know, calories and carbs and, you know, portion size and stuff, which never really went away for me. And I don't think ever really goes away for anyone who's absorbed that, that stuff. But then it was also about, you know, am I eating mostly plants? Am I eating too much or not enough or, you know, eat food too much, not mostly plants, right? Is it real food? Is it real enough? Like, you know, all of these additional questions and, you know, layers of like, is it sustainable? Is it organic? Is it uh, fair trade? Is it, you know, all these things that, you know, ethical considerations that I think, you know, some of them have their place, right? I think you can be an intuitive eater and also strive to eat in a way that's kind to the environment. And it's really complicated, right? And it's really messy. And I think it can threaten to suck you back into diet culture if you're not kind of constantly, um, you know, just vigilant about it, right? And so I think a a far um, easier approach is often to just like take take the strain away from it, take the morality out of it and to say like, you know, for me personally in my life, like I try to buy eco-friendly cleaning supplies or, you know, we have a hybrid car, like things like that. Right. But 
when it comes to how I eat, I'm not going to be obsessive about it because I know the road that that leads down and, and it's not a good road and, you know, was not helpful for me in my life. And so I'm choosing the self-care path of like, let's just be cool. Let's just be chill about food. Let's just relax a little bit about the standards and not worry if something is organic or not when I'm out at a restaurant and not worry if we can't afford Whole Foods that week and we got to go to a different store. You know, like it's okay. It's all okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear, I hear you. And, and I, I sort of, um, so much of that is resonates with me as, as, as someone who suffers from perfectionism and, uh, you know, OCD and other sort of obsessive tendencies. But I feel like there's also just so many people out there who are more relaxed about rules and, and guidelines that could pick up a Michael Pollan book. And I haven't read all the ones that are cited in here. I think I just read maybe the omnivore's dilemma and, and another one who could, who could look at those guidelines, like eat mostly plants, not too many. And I don't know, whatever else he says and, and use that as a goalpost or like a lighthouse without having to be a perfectionist. Maybe that's not me. Like, let me just, I'll just give you an example. I was out to lunch the other day with my girlfriend and I'm a vegetarian and so is she, but you know what she got for lunch? Cause there wasn't anything else on the menu. She got pasta with shrimp in it. Mm. <laughs> when she got that, I, I was like, in my mind, I was thinking like, you, like, what are you doing? Like you call yourself a vegetarian. And I know when I became a vegetarian and I would eat the meat left over from some of my friends. I at least I had one friend who was so upset with me <laughs> that I would go around with my vegetarian hat, you know, declaring myself to be a higher mortar, mortal than all others in the land. And then I would, you know, debase myself and the institution of vegetarianism by eating these leftover chicken on my friend's plate. So for me, who's like a perfectionist and and has problems with like, you know, deviating from the rules and stuff. I completely agree with what you're saying. And maybe the rules set out by people like Michael Pollan or the guy who did the fast food nation thing is, is perhaps pointing us in the wrong direction. But for all those other people who are <laughs> just naturally flexible and non-rigid and, and can call themselves a vegetarian, but still sit down to a plate of shrimp, like maybe there are redeeming qualities in those guidelines? I mean, that's an interesting question. You know, I am also somewhat of a perfectionist. So I think that that may have um, lent itself to my taking those things in a certain way. But, you know, I've worked with hundreds of clients, many of whom are not perfectionists, who still become obsessive about food, like where they're not perfectionists in other areas of life. And yet this thing about food becomes an all-consuming um you know, an all-consuming thing in their minds. And I think there's something about having rules about food and morality about food in a culture where rules and morality about food are, you know, dripped into us from, like, the womb onwards, right? Like, where we're just indoctrinated into this culture that is so shaming and blaming and demonizing and pathologizing of certain ways of eating and that lionizes you know, smallness and um, lack of eating, right? Lack of desire for food and, and you know, particular quote unquote clean foods and all that. I think it's really hard to not get kind of perfectionistic about it, even if, you know, there's gradations of kind of obsessiveness and compulsiveness around food. But I think that, you know, to me, most people who read 
Michael Pollan come away with some level of like, am I doing it right? Is this okay? You know, and that I think is, is a problem. Like, and I, I think, you know, there's definitely some redeeming ideas in there about the environment and, you know, how we could change the food system to be more environmentally friendly. I think the problem is that make putting it on individuals to make those choices, right? Saying that it's, you know, it's up to you to to switch the food, you know, to shift the food system by the choices that you make um, puts an inordinate amount of pressure on individuals in in a system where, you know, we're all doing the best we can. It's really expensive to eat in a, you know, sustainable pollen approved way, right? Um, there's a lot of financial and you know, time limitations to how you can do that. Like, it's great if you're a journalist who works from home like he does, who can, you know, spend all day cooking and writing about it. But if you're a busy single mom of three kids who's working two jobs to make ends meet and, you know, whatever, like that, that's a different, that's a different life, right? And that's a different approach to food. You need like the most convenient options, um, the most quickly. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, making those compromises, right? Making choices to just get food on the table affordably and in a way that, you know, allows you to spend some time with your family and not just be at home in the kitchen shopping all the time. Yep. Well, you know what? Maybe they should have been called anti-chopping. <laughs> Anyways, uh, thank you so much for all your time and I have a bunch of other questions, but we're at the top of the hour. Um, is there anything you want to plug or where people should find you? Uh, maybe an upcoming podcast episode or, or book or uh, projects you're working on? Yeah, I've got some got some cool projects I'm working on I can't really talk about yet, but I have my podcast is always there and I actually have it's um, season eight is starting next week as we record this. Um, so I'm you know, going into my eighth year of doing this podcast, which is just wow. unbelievable. And um, so we've got we've got some cool stuff coming up for season eight. You can find the podcast pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Just search for Food Psych and it'll come up. It's food space P-S-Y-C-H, no E at the end, just psych. Um, and you can also find me on my website, christyharrison.com, where you can learn more about the book, the podcast, and all my other work. Well, Christy, thank you so much uh, for sitting down to talk to me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thank you, Josh. I did too.